I am Plot on the Line in Vancouver, British Columbia at thecommentary.ca. Lyndon McIntyre joins me again. The distinguished journalist and novelist has just published a new book, The Winter Wives. It's described as a psychological drama that weaves threads of crime, disability, dementia, as well as love, loyalty, and delusion. It is a compelling read about two old friends who met in university, Alan and Byron. They're different. The latter is quiet, sensitive, as well as walks with a childhood disability, while the former is successful, worldly, and a hero on campus. The book opens in the present, when both are a little older, where they've loved and lost, Well, Byron married Annie when he pined for Peggy, her sister, who ended up with Byron. I'll get Mr. McIntyre to tell us as much as he'd like about the book, about the themes therein, especially growing older. Lyndon McIntyre received the 2009 Giller Prize for his novel The Bishop's Man, which uh, was also a bestseller. His other novels include uh, The Long Stretch, his first, as well as uh, Why Men Lie, Punishment, and The Only Cafe. Those three he all appeared on this program with on their release. He is also the author of uh, the memoir Causeway, a, a passage from Innocence, and uh, a nonfiction book, The Wake, which was published in 2019. He is the winner of 10 Gemini Awards for his work as a broadcast journalist, spending 24 years as co-host of The Fifth Estate. His Twitter handle is at McIntyreLJ. Uh, this new book is published by Random House. He joined me from Newfoundland in late August 2021. Please welcome back to the Plant Online program, Lyndon McIntyre. Mr. McIntyre, good morning. Good morning, Joseph. Thanks for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. So I was, I was telling you just before we started how much I'm enjoying the book. Um, the Winter Wives themselves, they're, they're two sisters, Peggy and Annie. What are they like? Uh, well, they're accountants. I guess they're stereotypes that we all maintain about accountants, but they're very different, actually, as women. Um, Annie is is uh, a cool, uh, rational uh, individual with sort of button-down emotions. Peggy is a wilder card. Uh, she's uh, far more uh, uh, sexy, I suppose, if that word is still in the language. Mm-hmm. She's, she's vivacious. She's brave. Uh, she likes to dash off into the dark and see what she runs into, and and so she's in, in that sense, she's very different from her sister. Yeah. She's also got a got a remarkable, and this is what I love about Peggy. I mean, she's got a remarkable curiosity about curiosity about other people and and what really makes them tick. Mm. And what it's why, it's why she's drawn she's drawn to Byron initially because uh, unlike the friend Byron's friend that she eventually hooks up with, uh, Byron is, is is a kind of a, an, an enigmatic guy because he's had an unusual experience, uh, being homeschooled mostly, uh, having had an injury that leaves him a little bit, uh, you know, uh, as he says, abled in a different way. Yeah. Uh, he, you know, he, he there's been nothing uh, uh, handicapped about his life. He's a lobster, he, you know, he fishes lobsters with his parents. He's a farm boy with shoulders and big biceps and strong guy, but, but he's not very big, he's not very good looking, and he's, he's kind of like, uh, because he's never really had much socialization, he's kind of a, a lonely guy, kind mm-hmm. of out there, and, and she's gone to him at a, at a time when most of the females in, in the world around him are kind of like more drawn to the more classic athlete, good looking guy with a nice car and a bright personality. So that, that's like Peggy is, is drawn to Byron for that reason. Even when he and Annie become, uh, you know, become 
partners. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't seem to be that excited by Byron. She's uh, engaged with him. They're, they have a kind of a functional, practical relationship mm-hmm. looking after Byron's mom. So they're two different kinds of women, but uh, they end up doing the same kind of work, which is uh, <laughs> accounting for a shady business operation. Yeah, and so so our narrator is Byron. You you mentioned already what what um, uh, what he's encountered in, in his life growing up, say, and 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 um, what he looks like. And I guess I guess how much of what he looks like is his identity, isn't it? He wears that, doesn't he? He does. He's he becomes um, he becomes awkwardly conscious when he gets into high school that he's different. I mean, he really didn't have much to compare himself to living on a farm with his folks in and out of hospitals. He didn't have much like to sort of say, well, I'm not like other kids. And suddenly he's in university and, and he has to come to terms with that. And it it's something that he doesn't allow to, uh, allow to uh, deter him from any of his ambitions. But mm-hmm. It hangs there. He's he's a solitary character. He gets he. I don't know how much you want me to tell you about the book, but he becomes a lawyer. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He ends up working in a law firm. Uh, he never he never becomes part of the the social collegial aspect of of a, of a law firm, and he's always considered to be the outsider. He always suspects that maybe he's the lame guy that you know he sort of that ticks off some kind of a. Uh, of, a, of, a, of a, a value system for the for the law firm that can show diversity of some kind. So yeah. he, he he kind of he is a lone wolf in in many ways. He goes to the big city. He lives in the big city. He kind of observes the big city life and culture. And then on the weekends he goes home to the quiet of the farm, and uh, and basically is with his mom. And so he's got a whole different impression of how he himself how he relates. To the rest of the world, and then ultimately, and, and to him, shockingly, how he relates to the legal profession. Yeah, yeah. Which uh, eventually he sort of semi departs from. And and is Alan the the, the reason why Byron goes into law? Because I, I seem to recall early in the book where where the suggestion is made, I guess, by by Alan that he go into law because it's uh, um, it's not only lucrative, but it's it's a you know it, it, it's there's always work, I guess, because there's always crime. Yeah. Right? Uh, Alan doesn't care what Byron. Alan wants Byron to be in on his business partner, mm-hmm. uh, but but it's particularly appealing to Alan that or to Alan that Byron plans to become a lawyer, because it, it, I'm not giving a whole lot away. But early in the book, we realize that Alan's uh, Alan's ambition in life is to to live on the on the lucrative and more dangerous yeah. uh, side of the law. And uh, so he can foresee that Byron, being as straight as Byron is, and as uh, as sort of like inoffensive, like Byron doesn't sort of—he's not a lightning rod for the attention of, say, law enforcement mm-hmm. or anybody, basically. So Alan very shrewdly sees that Byron would be the perfect foil, and plus, as a lawyer, he'd be very useful to Byron's uh, uh, business enterprises. And uh, and ultimately that that comes to pass. But Byron doesn't start out in life planning to become a uh, sort of a lawyer, sort of a, a front for a, a criminal operation. He he wants just wants to be a sort of a conventional lawyer uh, helping people. But circumstances.
circumstances lead him away from that conventional legal practice, which he becomes a little bit jaded with fairly early on. And, uh, and it, it kind of blurs his sense of, of what's right and wrong professionally. Mm-hmm. The same as it has blurred the, uh, the women who are accountants, it's blurred their, their sort of their moral compass a little bit. I mean, they, that you, you come to a sort of a pragmatic approach of what your job is as a lawyer or an accountant. And when you're, when you're dealing with clients that you don't necessarily admire very much. Yeah. So, so all four are drawn together professionally and personally. Um, personally. What, what I find fascinating as I'm reading the book is, is that these are so well drawn out characters. Um, at the same time, um, I don't know much about them. I, th- I feel like there's something behind each character that I'm, I'm, I'm as, I, as I told you before we started, I'm about halfway. I guess I'll find out in the second half, won't I? About, I hope. Yeah. So so what what is it like to, to, to write such rich characters? I mean, they're seemingly rich. I mean, was that fun, say? It, it's, it's satisfying. I, mean, I was a, 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 in journalism for more than years than I want to admit, but mm-hmm. they add up to 50. And, uh, and I've met an awful lot of characters in the, that line of work, uh, and especially in the television end of it. And um, it's, it's always the, the challenge in journalism, as you're well aware, is to, is to penetrate the, all, through all the layers of the filters that people have in order to to uh, control how, 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 how they're observed and understood by other people. I, I had this theory that, that we never really know people because people only allow us to know what they want us to know about them. I mean, the whole social interaction is, 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 is a bit of, is, again, this is my opinion, but mm-hmm. it's based on a whole lot of experience. Social interaction is it's, it's kind of like acting yeah, and performing, yeah. and uh, as a journalist, I always wanted to sort of like, sort of get through the, 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 you know, the scrims and filters and layers, and find out as much as possible about the the real individual. And and you never you never really can because people individuals really don't know themselves. I mean, they're they're sure, trying to project yeah, yeah. something. They're not necessarily. Some, a lot of people are, are hiding stuff, but a lot of people are just trying to project something without knowing what they're concealing. So it became, it became a kind of a fascination for me in journalism to, to really know people and to relate to them and, and to find ways, you know, and empathy is one of those cliche words, but it always, beca- it, it always became something that was kind of irresistible to other people. Uh-huh. If they, if they sense empathy, then they sense a, a certain zone of safety that, enables them to disclose what they might otherwise uh, want to hide. And so I've always had that fascination with, with character and getting as close to the essence of what a character is. And so writing fiction, of course, you, 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 can, let your, you can let your imagination lead you to all kinds of destinations that where you meet up with people who you think you knew or people who you wanted to know and uh, and so when when somebody sort of takes on a, a reality uh, on the screen or on the page or in, in between the book covers it, uh-huh. it gives you almost a kind of a you know a sort of a divine sense of satisfaction I, I, that 
that person lives and those people live and breathe in my mind. And when I hear, when I sense from a reader that they have become real for the reader, then you know I can I just go home and go to sleep for a while because yeah. there's nothing else to do. So, so at, the, at the heart of the book is identity, and this theory that you have about people and about social interaction, as you've just said, is something that actually Byron says in the book, that, that people are inscrutable surfaces, social fabrications, um, they're unknowable. Um, so uh, when, I mean, he understands that. Why do you think he wants to know more, say, about the people that, that are around him? I think that uh, for his own personal security, um, he wants to know, and, and he's driven, it's another thing he thinks in the book, and it's about the nature of love. And again, I, this, this sort of just came into my head at one point when I was writing, and I haven't really tested it uh, with any uh, experts or anything, but lo- love as a, a, an extreme form of curiosity. You want to know, you've suddenly become obsessed or infatuated with a person, and you want to know everything about that person. Mm. And what is the motivation for that intense, obsessive curiosity? And I believe, in a sense, it is, it, is a, it is a need for a feeling of safety because you know that you are now vulnerable, you are prepared to give of yourself to someone. And the only way you can do that with a sense of confidence that you're not exposing yourself to injury is to, to absolutely and fully know the entity to which you are extending this trust. And I, I, I believe that at some along this great continuum of, of relationships, uh, there is always this element of wanting to find the security of knowledge about the person that you are trusting with a relationship or in a relationship. And, and I believe, you know, maybe that's my motivation. Maybe I'm just a fundamentally insecure guy who who needs to know as much as you can possibly know and even more about people that I deal with uh, just because I don't want to be surprised. I don't want to find out that somebody is, uh, you know, some, a louse sure. at the yeah. end of the day, and uh, and I don't want to be caught flat-footed because then you know, once you've invested your affections or your respect or your fine or whatever, uh, you're... you're, you're, you're you're, you're paralyzed for at least a while when, when you suddenly realize you've been betrayed. I was going to ask you, Lyndon, about the nature of the marriages that, that we have in the book here, Alan and Peggy, Byron and Annie. Uh, how much of that, uh, what you just talked about, I guess, is found in those marriages? Uh, pretty well everything, I think. Uh, you know, the, the marriage that never happened between... Byron and Peggy might have been a, a different, you know, idyllic, romantic kind of marriage. Uh, with Annie and uh, and Byron, uh, the marriage he just sort of rises up out of the necessity of them working together on a couple of things and and having a, you know having a mutual fondness for each other and and you know sort of a limited physical kind of attraction. Yeah, there's a and short Byron there's and, a shorthand between the two of them. Yes. Exactly, and and uh, with with um, I think that uh, that Peggy and and Alan they start out these two very fine specimens of of humanity. Yeah, they, she she's sort of classically uh, you know beautiful woman. He's yeah. classically macho ma- masculine man, and and uh, they're kind of drawn to those primitive values, 
and soon find out that that's not enough. Uh, but but by then they're both they're in so deep that uh, especially because of, of uh, Alan's line of work and and her involvement in it, uh, they they can't really like start all over again. They're mm-hmm. kind of in it for the long haul. So uh, yeah, so the the, the mystique of, of character and the the mystery of character is is very is very much. A factor in, first of all, you know, the attraction of these people to one another, and then the the slow estrangement that that comes along, and uh, and the estrangement that eventually in Alan and and, and uh, Peggy's case, it's it's completed by by uh, you know uh, an illness. Yeah, and and this is I can't remember now which part of the book it's in, uh, as in uh, if. Byron is recalling this, or it's happening in real time as as, as the book starts. But he, he, I don't know if he says this, but we, we get the sense that that he feels that Peggy really knows who he is. Does she really, or does does he only think that she does? That's a really interesting question because we've just discussed the fact that she can't possibly know who he is entirely, nor he her, but he is naive in the sense that he has not had very much experience with other people. So when when she indicates to him uh, in, in high school uh, and sort of acts upon it by giving him a new name and by, by stumbling on the reality that he's uncomfortable with his given name, which is Angus, mm-hmm. and his discomfort with that name is a very, very dark part of his, his life. He suddenly realizes she doesn't. Want, she, you know, she wants to to liberate him from that name and give him a name that, you know, for a teen, teenager, they, they don't know the whole dark side of Lord Byron or that that culture that he was a part of. They just know that he was a famous guy and and he was a great poet and he was much admired. So uh, when she makes that gesture towards Byron or Angus, whatever mm-hmm. he is, uh, he suddenly realizes she knows me. And, and as they go around on their long conversational, you know, breaks in school and the like, uh, it's, she understands me uh, better than anybody. Well, he doesn't really have a lot of lot to go on there because he hasn't really allowed himself to get that close to anybody. Mm-hmm. Then, of course, it takes a little darker turn when they go swimming off the boat, uh, and, or she does, mm-hmm. and uh, and he suddenly realizes she sees the fact that I am aware of, and that bothers me so much, which is, I'm not normal. I am not a normal guy. And she gets it now. Yeah. And will she continue to accept me now that she understands that I'm, quotation marks, not a normal guy? And uh, and so he, he spends the rest of his life in that particular story uh, intrigued, worried about the fact that she doesn't know him better than anybody, and then a little bit uh, disoriented because they don't have a relationship in which they could sort of work with, with that knowledge, which neither of them really has in the first place. So I mentioned a moment ago that, that identity is at the heart of this book, and, and um, the thing I was thinking about, I, I'm 39, and... Uh, I, I, I would think that's about middle age. Um, 
most people, I, I would say I'm, I'm, I'm one of these people, you know, spends, say, the, 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 the first half of their life thinking about how they, they project onto other people or, or what other people think about them. And then I guess the second half or the, the, the last third, if you will, one worries about um, what they are to themselves. I guess Byron is in this, this, this part of life, isn't he? He is. And uh, he knows that, I think he knows instinctively that um, all the things that he thought he was and, and might have been were not true, uh, that uh, he sold himself short in many ways, he overestimated himself in other ways. And uh, again, I'm sort of wading into even parts of the story that you don't know yet, but mm-hmm, mm-hmm. When, he, when he thinks he's his personality is disintegrating. It gives him a sense, oh, now I know. I had this genetic flaw that may have started some time ago. That explains why I'm, you know, the way I am. And and it it sort of, in in, in a perverse way, it sort of, it it, it liberates him a little bit from the preoccupation, well, who am I and am I normal or not? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm not going to say what happens next because you didn't get there yet. No. I'll let, I'll let you discover it for yourself. But by the way, Lyndon, the, the, the dialogue um, in The Winter Wives appears differently than, than, say, it appears in your two previous books, which I've read. Um, is there a reason why? I don't know. I guess the dialogue is compared to the characters. And uh, the, a lot of the feedback I'm getting is that the characters in this book are quite different from any previous characters that I've connived in, in storytelling and uh, the dialogue the other thing maybe there's just more of it because yeah, yeah. Uh, I've, I've always I've always like wanted to I, I don't want to write screenplays or plays of any kind but I, I, I love to try to tell a story through the way people talk to one another uh, through conversations so you, 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 you move your story forward in encounters between people in which they talk a lot to each other and uh, and you you sort of shape shape the conversation to it, it'll get much more intense than that as you progress through the book uh-huh. and there there I give away that uh, police officers become involved in the conversation mm. so, so uh, uh, you know and his inter his interactions with those people uh, is uh, becomes a, a principal tool if, 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 I don't think anybody cares about this how you know but. but the instrumentation of storytelling, but for me, it becomes a tool in moving the story forward and and providing insights into people's character, their personalities, just the way they talk. I love the way people talk. Yeah. As a, as a television guy, for many years, you sit there and you, you know, you as, as you know, as an interviewer, you you have to learn to listen, and I learned to listen because you have to listen to what people are saying very carefully, and in the course of doing that. Just the way people speak, the way they use language, accents, gestures, all that stuff, it tells you an awful lot about people's personalities. And so I try to, I try to carry that forward into storytelling on the page, where the way a guy talks or the way a woman talks, the way people talk to one another, tells you about their character, and it, and it also moves the story forward in an engaging way where a reader doesn't think, oh, I'm being led by the hand or the nose down yeah. along this storytelling arc. Yeah, it's fun to read, and, and so one would assume that it was fun to write, was it? It was, because again, because I love I love the conversational device. 
And in this particular case, it just seemed to serve me uh, more than in, in past uh, in past books I've, I've, I've tried to write. And uh, and the deeper I get into it, where where this suddenly becomes, as someone has said, you know, in the second half of the book, it becomes a kind of a, like a crime story, crime thriller. Mm-hmm. And 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 my the, the fun I had with that is 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 uh, you'll see for yourself. It's just the way Byron. Uh, Byron becomes a, a different kind of a person, and uh, and 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 he does that mostly through his conversations with other people, uh, police people, police lawyers, accountants, cooks, you name it. And uh, and for me, it was great fun to do because uh, it just made the people feel all that much more real to me. You had a delightful piece on the Globe and Mail recently. Um, which talks about golf, and and the, the book opens uh, on a golf course. I understand that uh, that's not something golfing was not something you did until very recently. Is that right? Well, I had a, I had a friend. I've had a number of Allen type friends in my life. These are the physically abled people who are like athletic. Uh, they you know they 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 do, they do things easily that I can't do. Mm-hmm. Not because of any physical handicap, it's that I just don't do it. And uh, they all want to make me into a golfer, and they all fail. And but at some point, uh, as I wrote in the Globe and Mail, uh, I got roped into uh, fundraising for uh, you know uh, for musical uh, a musical center where mm-hmm. I spend a lot of my time. And they're using golf because everybody loves golf except me. And so. <laughs> I would traipse out onto the golf course once a year, go through this ordeal, and it was, you know, I would be the celeb one on the celebrity team with a, you know, NHL player and a, a politician and and somebody who was good at golf, and and I'd be the one person that wasn't. And I uh, I developed you know, walking around the golf course and not really being interested in the game. You you make a lot of <laughs> observations about. The game and how people get obsessed with it and how they relate to one another playing it. And I thought, you know, it is <clears throat> everything that it might lack as as a recreational activity. It sort of makes up for as as an opportunity to observe people. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and 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 how they behave and how crazy they get about something that, in the long run, doesn't matter much. But it does it does create a, a social and uh, in, milieu in which. They do business, they talk, they engage, they leave the miserable parts of the world behind. And in that sense, you know, it has social value. But it, And I, I envied that. I don't really have anything <clears throat> in my life that enables me to sort of step away from reality. Sure. Uh, and I sort of envy people who play golf or squash yeah. <laughs> or whatever. And, uh, and uh, but, but at the same time, I, I learned early on this isn't available to me because I just don't have the coordination, I don't have the dedication, I don't have the interest. Uh, I just, you know, I think the playing golf eats a day. Oh, I'm going to have oh, a sure, round yeah, golf yeah. the whole day is down the toilet. Yeah, and I can find better things to do with the day than <laughs> that. So there's a sort of a, I don't know. It, it can't, like it, for me, I invested a lot of time just fundraising and, and humoring my friends on a golf course, and I figured, okay, I'm going to bring home a little dividend from all that. I'm going to use the golf course and the golfers as, as sort of material for 
an aspect of my storytelling. And uh, just not to spoil anything, but the book ends on the golf course as well. Yeah, see, we, we get to, we, when we meet Byron and, and Alan at the beginning of the book, um, we learn a lot from their interactions on the golf course that we wouldn't yeah. otherwise, like if, if you wrote a scene, say, in a restaurant having lunch or, um, you know, working together on some endeavor, I don't think we would have gotten the same sort of idea of the, both of them. And that's what I learned. I learned that you can study character very, very closely on the golf course, and you can reveal it by describing what goes on on the golf course. Yeah. So in the, in the same Globe uh, piece, you, you say that you often write about things that you don't have personal experience with, um, be, be, and um, that over time you've learned enough from asking questions to write about them. Um, I guess that, that that's why you've written fiction over the years, um, because um, you've you've learned something, say, about life or, or about people. I mean, I certainly have gleaned some wisdom reading your books. Did, are you the same? Did you glean wisdom from from uh, not only I, your own writing but the process of writing, say? Uh, I wouldn't use the word wisdom. Uh, I, I welcome you your, your use of it, <laughs> but but what I what I acquired in journalism was. A whole lot of experience, and uh, and in the journalistic practice, you actually process and, and and use a small fraction of all that stuff, and and some of the stuff you know that that remains on the cutting room floor or just doesn't get uh, put anywhere is it is crippling in a way, it it it, it it's damaging in a way, and uh, I often used to reflect as a younger reporter. And even as a more mature reporter, the amount of time reporters, uh, both genders or all genders, uh, spend sitting around uh, in bars or at, at you know social functions, uh, drinking heavily uh, and uh, telling, exchanging war stories, and and I realized at a certain point this is therapy. Mm. This is this is uh, processing uh, stuff that's swirling around in your memory and in your in your you know just in in your background and. And it's stuff that's really menacing to your mental health. And, and it should be processed in some form. Now, sitting around getting drunk is not the most healthy way to do it. But we've all been at the Legion. We've all been at the barracks. We've all sat around listening to the old soldiers. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're aware, you know, that, that, you know, they tell these stories and they dramatize them. And they sound like they had the highlight of their life was when they witnessed the slaughter of their friends and, and, and their enemies and innocent people. And it's really not that at all. It's, it's them attempting to talk this stuff out, get it out, unburden themselves somehow. And I think reporters are much the same way. Now, in my case, I decided a few times in my life, there's a lot of crap uh, floating around in, in my head and, mm-hmm. and in the memory that I really should process somehow. I should take this stuff and turn it into uh, what might be useful to other people. And it certainly, if it isn't, it's useful to me just to sort of have to force myself to reflect on it and make sense out of it and write it down in a format that might entertain or inform another person who maybe has the same stuff going on in his or her mind or or maybe just should know about it because uh, they haven't had that experience. So... Yeah, it's, it's all a bit of, it's all a, sort of a reprocessing of, of your life and your experience in order to sort of give yourself a little bit more 
peace of mind than you might otherwise find. So if you, if you view it as therapy uh, of, of a sort, uh, of a sort um, I guess it's worthwhile, isn't it, for you to write? It, well, it has been. It, it, you know, I didn't really have this uh, insight when I started out, and it could all turn out to be a bunch of self-satisfying, um, self-indulgent crap. And, and, and it's entirely possible that some of it is or a lot of it is. I don't know. Uh, it's, it's sort of been purchased by publishers and purchased by readers. And, uh, and I'm sure that, uh, for, you know, that a lot of people say, this is garbage, uh, you know, what's, but, uh, it has, it has worked for me. Um, I'm not entirely sane, but I'm more so than if I had just sort of like, if I was sitting in a corner now, uh, reflecting on a whole pile of stuff that troubled me at the time and that I never really fully, uh, uh, processed in, in journalism, you uh, you know you you use a, just a fraction of, of a particular experience. We back in the time, it's not so much now. The field is being limited, but it was not uncommon to go to work in the morning and end up in Lebanon or someplace like yeah. that that night. And uh, and then you you come back from there a week or ten days or whatever later, and uh, your head is still. You, you what what was that? And a bunch of stuff that you will not encounter again until you go to another one of those scenes. Uh, you, uh, you do. Did that really? Ha- is that going on? What? What? It, you know, it becomes. Uh, and of course, in in the process of, of describing journalistically where you were and what you did, mm-hmm. uh, it's it, it's like the top layer of a very deep experience. And uh, and after a number of those those experiences, uh, you start to get strange, I believe. I'm speaking in my own for myself. You start to become a kind of strange because you you know a lot about the world, you know a lot about the dark side of the world, but but you're you're remote from it. And why is that? Uh, just strange. I, I, you know, I don't want to get too sort of self uh, self regarding on this, but there's a lot of guilt. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of disappointment in the limits of your professional ability. Um, you know the uh, yes, the images that just come back to you, and like, why couldn't I have done better to uh, illuminate the life that I just looked up close at? I, and and maybe if I had done a better job of it, that life would be improved. But for most of our journalism, nothing is improved. Uh, we tell the story and we move on to the next story. And and one of the great tragedies of journalism, I always found, was that the 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 optimism of people that you meet as a journalist that their life is going to get better as soon as the other human beings hear their story mm-hmm. understand their predicament it'll it'll be improved because people will rally no they don't uh, you, you you blow into a place a situation a family in trouble a country in trouble or whatever you tell the story as best you can 99% of the time nothing is improved by that and uh, and and after a lot of, I mean, maybe if you, when you're very young and and full of yourself, you think, yeah, well, I've solved that problem. And then the more experience you get, you know, you double back at some point, and nothing has improved. And uh, maybe you have moved the needle of human comprehension and empathy a tiny fraction, uh, and that's a good thing. 
but in the lives of the people that you've entered, you know, you've entered these lives, you've entered these situations, you've really accomplished nothing. So I guess maybe the whole process of writing fiction for me uh, has been, I mean, give that needle another little push to see if I can somehow move the needle of comprehension and empathy and, like, caring just a little bit further along so that maybe a few more people will, will respond to a, a situation that, that that basically arises as much out of experience as it does out of imagination. You, you mentioned empathy and caring just a moment ago, but you also mentioned empathy earlier. Um, do you think, um, I mean, you, you've been in journalism, as you said, 50 years. Um, you, you know what people are like. Do you think that's the... the, the Empathy is, is, is the, the, the real trait that a good journalist needs, say? I think so. And it's difficult. I mean, empathy without uh, empathy and empathy and you, 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 I'm worried about the word objectivity, but empathy and sort of uh, clarity, mm. are, you know, are, are crucial. But the two, they have to go together. There has to be a sort of a clarity about the empathy so that you're not getting sentimental. Sentimentality is the death knell of, of everything, but especially in journalism. And, and it leads the journalist into all kinds of dangerous places. So I believe empathy is absolutely crucial, but it, there also has to be a certain professional clarity that you're not being fooled and you're not fooling yourself and you're not fooling the people that you're dealing with. Uh, but you care. You bloody well have to care so that you, so that you give their story the full weight of the uh, of the rational emotional uh, value that it that it deserves, and 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 don't kid yourself that that it's going to really turn everything upside down and fix everything. But again, I go back to the the needle. You want to move the needle of comprehension and caring just a little a little bit, just even the the, the extent to which people will will be engaged by the plight of other people if that plight is described uh, in, a, in, a, in a clear and reasonable and sympathetic way. Uh, somebody will be moved by it, and somebody will change a little bit, and somebody else will change a little bit. And, and that's, we, we cannot hope for a, a transformation in human nature. Yeah. In any circumstances, we can only hope for slight adjustments in human behavior uh, because of what we learn as as, as we, we go along. Yeah, I'm going to I'm going to read this book, finish this book, I should say, a, a little more differently after hearing what you've just said, as well as perhaps go back to some of the, your, your previous work. Um, I can't tell you how much I'm enjoying the book and have enjoyed our conversation uh, today. Linda, congratulations and continued good luck with the book. Say hi to Carol for me, would you? I will, and thank you, and you keep up that good work. So I, I peer over your shoulder through your Twitter feed and uh, follow your, your thinking, and so keep it up. You're, you're a good man out there. Thank you. The book is called The Winter Wives. It is published by Random House. Its author, Lyndon McIntyre, joined me on the line from Newfoundland in Vancouver. I'm Joseph Plunto.